Hey guys, I'm Eric McLean. And I'm Kelly Gramlich. It's time to talk some ACC football. Let's go. Happy Tuesday, everyone, and welcome into the Gramlich and McLean podcast as we continue our ACC under review series. Make sure you rate, review, follow, subscribe, whatever you want to do on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. Mac, I don't know if you've seen this, but Spotify is now taking ratings and reviews. So we would appreciate that from our awesome listeners. We love reading those. We love seeing those. And uh, this is another dual site. I'm up here in Bristol getting ready for some hoops. Mac is at home, <laughs> getting ready for perhaps another round of golf, it seems. Mac, how are you, my friend? Mm, I am doing great. Got to play a little golf yesterday at the esteemed cobblestone course here in Columbia. I think it's actually in Blythewood. I don't know if it's necessarily Columbia, but it's right here. And uh, it's a really pretty course. So I, I had a ton of fun hanging out there. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a good golfer, but I have fun. And I'm also, I think this is really important, actually, KG. I am good at being bad. Oh, that's a good skill to have. Does that make sense? I'm not good at that. I need to work on that. Yeah, well, here's the deal. If I hit a bad shot, I'm not going to sit there and cuss or throw my club like I suck. Like, I know I suck. So it's okay. I mean, I might be a little disappointed, but, you know, it's it's okay. And then if I hit a good shot, I'm like, yeah, that was awesome. But I, I'm not going to pout. I'm not going to be sad. We're out in nature on a beautiful course having a great time. I'm the, I'm just, you know, I'm not here You're for a long time. I'm here for a good time. You are better so, than uh, me. That is good. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm very enjoyable to be with on a golf. Uh, you're, I think you're four months older than me, and that's what's that that's showing, Mac. It's that maturity. It's that four months of maturity. <laughs> that wisdom. Okay, okay. <laughs> that was good. Quick math there, by the way. I, I like that. But ask. I think it's close. Mine's mine March. Okay, and I'm um, so maybe yeah, three. So that makes sense. Ninety-three. Yeah, exactly. Right there. Right there. <laughs> great year. Great year, by the way. As KG said, we're continuing our mini-series ACC under review. We've already knocked out right about half the league. If you guys missed any of those episodes, be sure to go back, check them out. But today, KG, we are talking about the Virginia Tech Hokies with our guy, Andy Bitter. One of the most historic programs in this league, one of the most passionate fan bases. We have a lot to discuss. Andy is a beat writer for The Athletic, covering all things Hokie football since 2011. Previously, he wrote for the Virginia Pilot and the Roanoke Times. Andy has been writing about college football for over 20 years. Guys, really enjoyed this conversation with Andy. We dove into everything Virginia Tech. Really think you're going to enjoy this insight and maybe a little, you know, some behind the scenes things that, you know, nobody would know unless they're on the ground like Andy is. But let's get right to it. Andy, welcome into the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Excited to chat with you about all things Virginia Tech. Yeah, thanks for having me. I don't have a whole lot going on right now. This is the time of year where it's just sort of this dead period in the calendar. So I'm glad I got to get my chops back up for spring football talking about this stuff. That's right. I think the only person that's busy right now of the three of us is KG with basketball season. She is up in Bristol right now, somehow making time for us. So a superstar as always. But Andy, really, we always start kind of here with these episodes that we've done. ACC under review, just kind of a general overview reaction of the season because VT had a roller coaster 21 to say the least you, you beat number 10 
UNC at home. And it was one of the most electrifying, glorious scenes that we have witnessed in quite some time. And then we lose for the next six. And then we flip-flop games. We go back and forth and we beat Virginia at UVA. It's one of the best Virginia teams that they've had in quite some time. And then the bowl game was just an absolute tail whipping. And our coaches on TV and they're scoring 80-yard touchdowns. What are your thoughts on the 21 season? I feel like right now it's like a, a big storm just came through and you're kind of looking at the calm aftermath of, of everything that happened because it was such a, a turbulent season. And, uh, you know, y- you go into the season, even though they win that game against North Carolina, and, you know, that was framed uh, against the backdrop of Justin Fuente's job status. Everything that happened last year was uh, framed with that backdrop. And is he going to be able to turn this thing around? And obviously he was not able to. And I think you got to the middle of the season where they lose uh, to Notre Dame uh, on a last second or at the last second in the final minute there. They get blown out by Pitt and then they give up the the deep pass to Syracuse at the very last second there. That was like the last straw at that point. It's like there's no coming back from this for Fuente. And it was just sort of this, you know, this period where you're just like waiting for him to get fired. I mean, that's that's what it was. There there was nothing he could do at the end of the season to turn this around and, and sort of save the situation. So I don't know. It was a a rocky ride for Virginia Tech fans. The inevitable happened, and now they're sort of picking up the pieces afterwards. And I think they're excited about the Brent Pry hire. Uh, I think when it was announced, perhaps not, because you know you get these job lists, and everybody's like, "Oh, they're going to hire you know (laughs) Urban Meyer and all these ridiculous names that will never happen." Or, "Oh, Matt Campbell's going to come here." Luke Fickle's like, "No, those guys were not going to come here." Uh, but, and, and then you get Brent Pry, you get a defensive coordinator and people are like, who's Brent Pry? But the, the more they learn about him, the more they learn about his past with Virginia tech. I think they like him. So, uh, you know, from, uh, really disliking and sort of having a, a turbulent start to the season, I think now things are a little bit smoother and, uh, you know, they sort of start the rebuild after this storm came through. And it feels like he, he's starting to win people over the snowball fight was big. I saw that everywhere. People excited about Brent in the snowball fight. Um, but let's talk about Fuente for a second because it, he took over, had that great first year. And sometimes I think it can doom a coach, no matter the sport. If you have a great first year with someone else's players, and then you can't replicate it as you start to recruit. Obviously, he had quite a few years after that, was not able to replicate. What went wrong with Fuente? Like, why wasn't he, in the end, besides the winning or the lack of, I should say, why wasn't he a good fit at Virginia Tech? You know, I think it was a couple of things. It's interesting that first season, uh, people say, oh, he won with with Frank's players. It's like, well, he won a lot more with Frank's players than what Frank was winning with Frank's players. And he also brought in Gerard Evans, who had a, a you know major hand, you know, the quarterback piece in that first team took them from what was, uh, you know, basically a 500 team at the end of Frank Beamer's run to one that could win the, the ACC uh, Coastal Division in that first year. So that, I think, you know, there was a big difference with Fuente coming in at that point. And past players have talked about the attitude change that comes with that. But, you know, I, I think beyond that, the recruiting piece is something that was pretty significant. Uh, struggled to recruit locally uh, in the state. Uh, I think rubs some in-state coaches the wrong way and that damaged relationships here that had a trickle-down effect. Uh, you know, the player development side of things uh, at important positions. And he came here and he had this reputation as a quarterback guru. And then Gerard Evans does so well in year one. Everybody's like, see, it's it's justified how good he is. Then you look at the quarterbacks after that, and there's just no long-term development or consistency at that position. 
they never really had a guy that was developed year over year. I think Hendon Hooker, they hoped, would be that guy, and then he leaves to go to Tennessee and flourishes in another program. That's sort of a, a pretty big indictment of the development that they had here at quarterbacks, that this guy who never threw for more than 13 touchdowns in a season here goes to Tennessee, and all of a sudden he's like a dark horse Heisman candidate uh, playing for the Volunteers though there. Uh, and then at the same time, the guy that you replace him with, Braxton Burmeister, really struggles. And, uh, you know, it was like, it seemed like Ryan Willis, Head and Hooker, Braxton Burmeister, like none of those guys really got better over the long term. And that became a problem. But when you don't have that quarterback position right, then other flaws exist on this team that sort of pop up and are a bigger deal. So I, I think those are two of the big ones. Uh, you know, for as, as bad as things got here, it's not like this program ever just like, went two and 10 or something like that. Like it's, it's somewhat telling that a terrible, awful season that you have to fire the coach at Virginia tech is a six and six season right? or six <laughs> and seven in the postseason. But uh, you, you know, it was just, it was a time where it got to a point where I think everybody's like, this isn't working. It's time to try something new. Yeah, no, I, I think it, it is telling, you know, that, that you're, there's just so much expectation and that, you know, six and six bowl game, that's not enough. You know, it's it's not enough for, for whatever reason. I want to kind of stay on that quarterback situation and, and just dive into it a little bit. If, if you know, there, there's things that maybe you saw, because it's very weird to me that a guy who played quarterback, a guy that who was known to be a quarterback developer, just couldn't get it. Is there a reason why it could? Did he demand too much and maybe just said, okay, I got to move on. This this guy can't do it. it, it was there a reason you know, why he couldn't develop these guys in, in your eyes? Or was it just, you know, bad luck with a, with a couple of quarterbacks in a row? It might be a little bit of that. I mean, I, I think you look at some of these guys and they coach them very hard. And you know, I talked to a former quarterback uh, that, w- that played here and it's just like, they just like were on me and on me and on me. Like even when I went like, you know, made a completion or something like that, but it was to the wrong person or the wrong, you know, didn't make the read correctly, even though it was a positive result. Like, there's like, why do you throw it there when you're supposed to throw it here? And, you know, you heard Justin Fuente say over and over in this program and and talk about what he wanted out of quarterbacks. He goes, expected outcomes, predicted outcomes. Like, they have this in their mind, like, this is how you play quarterback and you have to go to this specific spot. This is the correct read and all this. And sometimes, you know, these are college players. They're not going to make perfect decisions all the time. And, And sometimes they do incredible things and you know they make a great play that maybe wasn't by design i think if you're a coach you have to be like hey good job with that <laughs> like we'll take that we'll take that improvised play that went for 25 yards that's all right we'll get them on the next play and, and it didn't seem like fuente really thought about things like that because he had such a, a like a perfect picture of how you're supposed to play quarterback or you got to make this right read. And that's the important part. It's like, well, sometimes the outcome is important too. And whether you're, you're getting positive plays. So I think that got in a lot of these guys' heads where they were just so afraid to make a mistake that they didn't go out there and they weren't their best selves. And you see, you know, that, you know, I don't know Hendon Hooker's entire situation at Tennessee and why he's been so successful there. I know he started out on the bench, <laughs> they actually started Joe Milton and then they put Hendon Hooker in. So it wasn't like he got there and it was like this revelation right away. And he was an awesome player, but you look at him play and he looks like he's playing free and he's playing loose and he's not afraid to make mistakes. I think that might've contributed to this whole thing. Yeah. And, and that's, that's tough to hear because it, it's such a, such a 
I don't know, fragile state college football is right now. And, and you know, maybe there, you're going to see more of this where, you know, coaches who have these hard, hard expectations and, and expect a certain thing and want to want something a certain way. Guys are like, well, I'm leaving. I'm going somewhere else because there is such a freedom, you know, to really do so. But, you know, really, you know, Andy, when we're looking at this offense from a holistic view, we knew it was going to be impossible, right, to replace – Khalil Herbert. I mean, the things that he was able to do, he was so good in really every aspect of the game. And even special teams was so impactful. But everything that I had heard and read and was looking into this season was that, you know, this passing attack was going to be the best that Fu ever had. And, and the expectation, all the wide receivers coming back, the offensive line they had coming back, and of course the expectations from Braxton now that it was his team. That offense went on to do 23 points per game, 185 rushing yards, which I think the year before was like 240, and then 170 passing yards per game. I mean, it it was inconsistent. It was no identity. I I mean, what was your biggest issue with the offense in 21? I think you look at quarterback play first. I don't think Burmeister was the the player that uh, they were making him out to be. I think that turned out to be a surprise. Uh, You know, I think Fuente going into the season, thought that the offense would be the strength of the team. They'd have a tough time stopping anybody, and that just wasn't the case. And uh, I don't really know the reason for that. Maybe it, it goes back and it speaks to that the coaching side of things and demanding perfection and, and getting his head so he wasn't playing like he was. Because you look at the end of last year, uh, he came in against Clemson, or at the end of 2020, I should say. He came in against Clemson and looked pretty good yeah. against a, a really good Clemson team. And then he had a very good game against Virginia in the finale. And you go, okay, this is what this guy can be. Right. I, uh, I remember in my notes, man, it said, okay, if, if we can get that Braxton, I mean, look out, Virginia Tech, who knows? And that's the way they talked him up all off season. And, you know, we wonder, like, why were the expectations so high on the passing game? Well, Fuente was the one who set those expectations at the ACC kickoff, saying this is the best he's ever felt uh, about the passing game. And, uh, you know, it wasn't, I mean, they, they only really had two receivers, two and a half receivers that they could trust. The rest really weren't healthy or were really too young to get out there and make big contributions. I think, uh, that was perhaps overstated how much they were going to contribute to this whole thing. You know, the offensive line had to shuffle quite a bit. There were some injuries early in the season, had some young guys. I think you miss Christian Derrissaw a lot more than you think. I mean, he's a first round pick, so you're going to miss him, but uh, just thinking of what that does to your offensive line, where Tanuda has to flip over to the left side, then you're replacing somebody brand new at right tackle. They didn't really settle that position for half the season. And, uh, you know, the running backs just weren't quite as explosive as Herbert. I mean, I think, uh, you know, he came in and he was so outstanding. He just had this knack, this patience. And, uh, you know, they seemed like they found something with that with Raheem Blackshear late in the year, but they never really got that early in the season. So it was just, it was a number of things. I don't think I can say, oh, it was definitely just one thing. Probably the quarterback more than the rest, just how he played. But, uh, you know, there were a lot of contributing factors for why this offense was not that great. There, there were for sure, Andy. And I, again, not just one guy, but how much did the Jane Mitchell uh, injury hurt them? Because this was a guy that we were all so excited about. Mac, who's a former tight end, doesn't really share that often, but, you know, super excited about Jane. Still has that, that soft spot for the tight ends. They missed him and his leadership, I assume, too, Andy. Yeah, when I'm going through and ticking off all the things there, that happened so long ago in the season, week two, I didn't even remember it. (laughs) Thank you for bringing that up because that was a huge piece. I mean, that was, uh, you know, he was their best offensive player, I would say, just in terms of everything that he did for that group. 
uh, veteran guy, leader in the in the room. Uh, I think Fuente mentioned they missed his. They they didn't realize they'd miss his blocking as much as they did in terms of run blocking. Uh, so yeah, I mean you lose your best offensive player in the second week against. Uh, I think it was Middle Tennessee or something right. like that on a running play near the goal line. You're just like, man, that stinks. I mean, you you hate it for James because he's such a a great guy and and really sort of a, a role model on this team. But then from the the player piece of this offense, uh, that was a big absence to have all year. The the craziest thing to me about that injury, and, and it's hard to speculate. It's hard to guarantee things would happen, but. I can almost sit here and guarantee they win that West Virginia game because his the presence that he would have had on that goal line attempt, e- either running or passing, we were on the two-yard line and couldn't score, and we had four attempts, right? And, and so it's like I can almost guarantee that would be a dub, and then you're rolling into Notre Dame 5-0. and oh, Who knows what happens? I mean, that was such a close game, and, and if you have just a playmaker like that, so certainly luck has a lot to do with success on the football field in, in regards to keeping guys healthy, keeping guys in the game. And, man, it just it stunk not to have who I thought was TE1 in the ACC in Mitchell for, for the entire year pretty much and, and the impact that he surely would have had. Andy, I want to go to that offensive line because when they were healthy and when they were all out there, they were fun to watch. And the production or the lack of – just running behind those guys was confusing at times when they were healthy, but I'm thinking of Brock Hoffman, a guy that is just nasty and is going to give so much extra effort and really try to you know get guys on the ground. Luke, we, we know how you know tenacious he can be and, and special in the passing game. Lasitas, Johnny Jordan, when he would get in there, a lot of those guys are going to be gone. John, Johnny, of course, coming back, but who do you expect to really step up to be the guy. You know, I think it was Brock for for these last couple of years as as a vocal leader and a guy that's going to get guys in the right position, but who are who are who who's going to be a leader or leaders of this unit moving forward in 22? Well, you mentioned Johnny Jordan coming back. Uh got a 6th year of eligibility, so that that's a big piece there. And he's somebody who could step in and play center or guard. I'd, I'd probably expect him to play center and replace Brock in that sense. And and then uh, you know, you look at Silas Janzi a guy who's be he'll be in his sixth year and really seventh year because he prepped a year before he got here at Fork Union. So those are two veteran guys uh, on this offensive line, at least to start with. And it was actually kind of surprising that both of them are coming back. I, I didn't think Janzi would. I think he participated in senior day. And you're like, okay, he might be done here. Jordan did as well. And it's like, uh, I, I think his sixth year was somewhat of a surprise that he got it. And I, I still haven't gotten a clear explanation of why he got it. So, uh, compared to what they thought they were going to have, those two veteran pieces are very big. But then I think you look at somebody like Caden Moore and Parker Clements, who played a lot last year as freshmen. They weren't true freshmen; they were second-year freshmen. But uh, you know, Moore started the whole year basically at right guard. I think he played very well for his age, and I think Clements came on. So you know, you lose guys like Tanuta, Hoffman, Lasitas. Uh, on the on the he- heels of the previous year losing somebody like Derisaw, that's a lot of talent to leave the program in a short amount of time on the offensive line. But I think uh, the picture is a little bit better than I thought it was on like January first, when I'm like, man, they are starting completely over, and they just have these two uh, soon to be sophomores to build around, and then a bunch of guys who have never played. So if you're plugging one spot. I think that's a little bit more acceptable than going, oh man, we got three spots we got to fill with guys who have never been on the field before. That would have been pretty daunting. Uh, even for a coach like Joe Rudolph, who I think everybody has pretty high hopes for here. 
Yeah, I agree. Okay, let's let's talk a little defense, Andy. We always do this. Oh, this is so us. We talk offense for the first 20 minutes, but that's what people care about. <laughs> um, but defense here with Virginia Tech. Look, the bowl game I don't think was indicative of the the overall defensive situation at Virginia Tech this year. There were some ball hawks in the secondary, Jermaine Waller, super talented, Amari Barno, we saw him at the senior bowl. So and a lot of those guys opted out, injured, whatever, for the bowl game. So that was a problem because that was on national TV and everyone saw it. But overall, I know they lose a lot of pieces. So what do you expect from this defense? Like, it's not going to be as bad as what we saw against Maryland, especially because Brent Pry is a defensive guy. Well, yeah, that was the uh, the rough part about Brent Pry. He was being interviewed at the bowl game while Maryland's throwing like an 80-yard touchdown pass. It's like, talk about bad timing. It's like, guys, you couldn't wait 20 seconds until I'm off the air to give up this 80-yard touchdown pass. Come on now, you're killing me. I think it'll be better just from the fact that that's Pry's specialty. That's his baby. He's going to run this defense. He's already said that he's going to be calling plays next year. Uh, he knows the standard and what he wants it to look like. And that's the best way to communicate it to guys and sort of get that uh, defensive level back up. You know, they lost a lot of playmakers on that side of the ball, though. You, you mentioned Barno, uh, Jermaine Waller, Jordan Williams played pretty well on the interior. Not going to have him. Uh, they do get Chamari Connor back. Uh, he's going to be playing more of a traditional safety spot. Dax Hollyfield, uh, Keisha artists at linebacker Alan Tisdale as well so they have some guys there I think the question on this defense is really going to be defensive line and who is going to get after the quarterback up there it's 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 pretty rough once you get to that second group at defensive end it might even be pretty rough once you get to the other starter at defensive end I'd assume Taiwan Garbett's gonna be one of the guys the other side I don't know Cole Nelson maybe somebody young like that step in and somebody who hasn't really done it before so uh, there's some playmaking spots. I think they need some help at on that side, but just in terms of, uh, you know, this was a program that was run by an offensive guy for a while, uh, supposedly based on how that the results were over the years, but, uh, you know, now it's a defensive minded guy and it's getting back to, you know, the roots of what Virginia tech was. That was part of the, the, uh, the interest in Brent prize go, this is like a, a younger version of Bud Foster here. This is the mentality that they want. And that's sort of what was successful at Virginia tech. So I think just that mentality and just that approach and having the head coach be so involved on that side of the ball, I think that should help this defense, even though I don't think it's going to be like a top 20 unit or anything like that. Andy, I completely agree with you, man. And really going back to, you know, the, the first question and, and talking about, you know, coach pry and, and the, um, almost level of confusion, you know, because what we had heard from the administration was we're going after a head coach. We're, we're going to get a guy with experience. And then this happens and you're like, well, who the heck is that? And then I start looking into coach pride. I'm like, oh my gosh, I think this is going to be perfect. And in the passion that he has, the, the level of expectation that he is going to hold for Virginia tech. I mean, I don't think there's any question that he's walking into these meetings. He's talking to these guys and he says, this is going to be linebacker you moving forward. We are going to create, we are going to develop, we are going to go after these type of people, and, and there's going to be a standard set in place here. And that's what, I mean, that's what Virginia Tech, you know, was for so many years, this defensive, grindy team that's going to make crazy plays in special teams. And I, I hope, I think, that with this staff and, and with Coach Pry, that's what we're going to get. Um now that, that we've had time to settle it, and as you said, what, what, what excites you most about the hire in Coach Pry? 
Well, I think the interesting thing to me is that he's sort of going by the Frank Beamer blueprint. I mean, he, he talks about recruiting and he goes, we're going to have a six hour radius around Blacksburg that we're going to recruit. That's a Frank Beamer saying <laughs> that is like direct quote from Frank Beamer. When he talks about, we're going to be a strong defensive team, uh, power running offense and, you know, ball control like that. You know, that's what Frank Beamer ran with this offense for the longest time. And, you know, he got stale near there near the end of the, the Beamer era, and it needed to be updated a little bit. I think Pry will try to do that with his offense. It's not like he's going to go out there and just, you know, you know, run the uh, like basically an option offense. Like you, you look back at the Michael Vick era, it's like, yeah, Michael Vick was outstanding, but he didn't put up incredible stats because he played in a, like an I formation offense. It's a pretty basic offense back then. So I think they're updating that aspect of it, but I think the mentality of it is is similar. And that they want to own the state, own the area. They want to win back the hearts and minds of Virginians for Virginia Tech. They want to recruit locally and they want to play defensive sound football. And I, I think that's an interesting way to go and approach it after, you know, kind of got away from that for a while. And, you know, it, it was worth a try, I think, with Fuente. And, the, you know, they got the hot offensive coach that came in and they retained Bud Foster at first. And it looked like it was the, the perfect situation at first, but some, there was just a disconnect there. Uh, after a while, and it wasn't sustainable. So I think I'm curious at a school like Virginia Tech if uh, you know that's how you have to win, because uh, nobody's ever really won other than that way here. I mean, that was the way right. for the longest time. <laughs> there's there's not really another proof of concept that's out there. So uh, that's what I'm curious most about uh, with the Pry hire. No, I'm, I'm with you. When when you look at this staff that you know Coach Pry has been able to assemble. I know a lot of people are excited and, and very excited that J.C. Price staying on the, the staff here. I think that is a absolute no-brainer. It's kind of like Odell Hagens down at uh, Florida State. It's just a guy you keep. I mean, he, he's such a presence. you got to keep him. But is there anybody in particular, maybe you know, a couple of guys that you know, when, you, when you heard the names, when you saw the, them commit to you know, Virginia Tech, you're like, oh, my goodness, like, this is going to be fun to have this coach here at this position. Well, the one that jumps out is Joe Rudolph. Uh, you know, I'm doing a, a little fan survey on the athletic. I said, which which assistant coach are you most excited about? And I listed all the the new assistant coaches, and Joe Rudolph's getting like seventy percent of the vote right now. Like it's overwhelming how much he's getting. So I think that kind of tells you where the excitement lies with these new hires, and that makes sense too because you look at some of these guys. You know, Tyler Bowen I think is interesting as an offensive coordinator, but he's 32 and he hasn't really done it on a full-time basis as an offensive coordinator. Chris Marv is an interesting name, and I remember him from, uh, you know, when I covered the SEC as a linebacker there, but he's also 32, and he hasn't done it before. So they don't have these long histories, uh, a lot of these coaches of being so, like somebody they've heard about and know about for the longest time in the coaching circles. But Joe Rudolph sort of has that reputation, and you've seen how they've done it at, at Pittsburgh and obviously Wisconsin uh, when you're talking about the offensive line. Wisconsin is is sort of the the standard right. there. So uh, I think people look at that Joe Rudolph hire and they go, man, what can he do with the Virginia Tech offensive line uh, if he's done it with these other stops? Right. And, and you know, it's super interesting. You mentioned how young these guys are that have the the coordinator role, the offensive coordinator, defensive. But, but I think what is really unique when you look at all these titles, which there's a lot of them, I, I've never really seen anything like this, but I, I think it's almost going to be like a group project. Like Joe Rudolph, Brad Glenn, Tyler Bowen, get in a room, get us the best offense that we can. I, I think all three of them are, are like the offensive coordinator. And then with Chris Marv and, and of course, Coach Pry is calling the defenses. So I think it's almost a, 
let's grow these guys up. Like we have this vision of of not holding hands, but we're going to hold their hand along the way, and then eventually there'll be a day where they're the guy, and, and you know we're surrounding them with this great support. Is that kind of how you envision? Is that kind of the reasoning behind? You know, everybody have some type of coordinator or head coach title. Yeah, I think so. And uh, it's not like they went out and they hired some guru to come in and bring his system in. Oh, we're going to, you know, this is the Chad Morris hire or something like that. You run that offense. It's like, this is going to be the offense that Brent Pry has in his mind. And he's sort of going to mold these guys on how he wants it run. And that'll especially be the case on defense. And he said as much uh, sort of uh, growing Chris Marv into that defensive play caller role. So uh, it'll be interesting to see. It's an interesting approach because sometimes you see these first-time head coaches come in and they go, well, I'm going to hire somebody who's uh, you know, a big name at a coordinator spot. He's going to bring it in. He's going to do it how he wants, and I'll kind of let the, him run the offense. That's not the case with Pry. He's going to you know, be involved on that side. And he's going to sort of mold it and how he wants it done. So uh, we'll see if it works. <laughs> you never know with these hires. You know, you talk about these hires. You're like, man, I, I love how he's done this and this and this. And like, people were saying this about Fuente six years ago. I mean, you just don't know. He was the perfect hire at first, then all of a sudden he was not the perfect hire, and uh, it happened in you know the blink of an eye. It seemed like. Andy, I want to talk schedule, but first, I'm going to gas you up for a second because I saw a survey the Athletic put out uh, to, uh, surveying ACC fans, and I think. Grace Rayner posted, who, of course, does a great job for the athletic covering Clemson. We had her on. I swear they said, OK, respond who your who your team is. It was like 50 percent Virginia Tech. So apparently you have the Virginia Tech market cornered. So if you're listening right now, Virginia- he's got a lot of pool. He's got a lot of pool. Well, first of all, I think it was like 23 okay, percent. It was a good was number. Vast majority, though. Uh, I was like, dang, all these Hokies. To be fair, though, we don't have we don't have beat writers for all the ACC schools. We have Miami, Clemson, Virginia Tech. So hey, hey, hey keep it a secret. Keep that to yeah. yourself. <laughs> I just I think it just shows that Virginia Tech fans are like this, just like. Uh, franchises or fan base is just waiting for a good team. Like it's been 10 plus years since they've had like this team that they can really like. They're just like laying in wait. Like when do we get to come back and, and be loud, and obnoxious about how good our team is? They've been waiting for it. Oh yeah. They're starving. Well, Andy, you don't get to be humble on this podcast. So anyway, if you are a Virginia tech listener, subscribe to the athletic because they got a lot of great Virginia tech stuff and Andy's doing an awesome job. Okay. Let's talk schedule. When I'm looking at this 2022 schedule, Obviously, I see BC week two, which is interesting. That's at home. But I see two four, two uh, pods of four games, okay? I see a very tough pod, West Virginia, at North Carolina, at Pitt, Miami, for the bye week. Then I see a very manageable pod at the end of the season, Georgia Tech, at Duke, at Liberty, never know, and then Virginia at home. So it feels like if you can get into November feeling decent, you can rack up some wins there. What do you see? What stands out from this 2022 schedule? Yeah, I think you you hit on it there. It seems like if you're pry and you're trying to rebuild this team, you probably would prefer that those little pods get flipped <laughs> and that you have the easier stretch early on and the tougher stretch uh, later in the season. But that's not how it worked out. Uh, yeah, they'll be tested early. Uh, you know, West Virginia... I, I don't know how good West Virginia is, but they beat them last year, and that's a rivalry game, so it's always something that's that's hotly contested there. But then that stretch there, uh, I don't have it in front of me, so I can't remember exactly. UNC, Miami, Pitt, in, in some order there. Uh, I mean, that, those are the toughest teams in the Coastal Division, I would imagine. 
we'll see. The Coastal Division always throws some surprises at you, but <laughs> that's right. Uh, you know, you know, Pitt was fantastic last year. I think Miami probably will be the favorite going into next season, just based on uh, the quarterback play and how they finished up last season. Uh, and then UNC's got talent. They haven't been able to put it all together, but they've got talent that's down in Chapel Hill. So that that's a really tough stretch there. And then NC State at the end of that, I, I think after the bye week, uh, you know, high hopes people have for NC State next year, which, uh, you know, double-edged sword with the Wolfpack, they seem to fall short whenever they have high expectations and overachieve whenever they have low expectations. So who knows really with that. But yeah, I think... Um, if I'm coaching this team, I'd probably wish that some of those later season games like uh, Duke and uh, Georgia Tech are earlier in the year to, to ease into things because, you know, BC is a really tall task in week two with your COVID coming back. So I, I don't know exactly how that plays out. So it, there's some tough stretches on it, but I think overall, I mean, you miss Clemson, you miss Wake Forest. I mean, it's weird to say that you miss Wake Forest, but that's probably a positive that you don't play that team. Uh, the non-conference is fairly manageable with West Virginia being at home. Uh, I know they lost to Liberty last time they played them, so that's maybe not the gimme game that people think uh, right before that UVA matchup. But I look at the schedule and I don't go, this is just uh, you know this murderer's row of opponents. I think it's pretty manageable for a first-year head coach, and uh, that's probably what you want when you're rebuilding a roster. And, and I'm, I'm looking at it and I go, maybe six wins is you feel pretty good about getting to a bowl game next year. I know Virginia Tech fans don't want to hear that, but I think that's sort of where this team is right now. Heck, get to November 1st with like three wins, maybe four. And then if you win those last four, you're feeling pretty good. So we'll see what happens there. I want to ask you about the the Virginia-Virginia Tech rivalry. I asked David Teal about this because as an outsider to the Commonwealth, I am trying to understand. I feel like most years, or some recent years, I've said to myself, Virginia is the better team. I'm going to take Virginia. And I'm almost always wrong. There's, there seems to be, and we asked David Teal about this, the, the mental holdup for UVA. So I want to flip it. Like Virginia Tech, it, they just own UVA. There's some mental side of it. What have you seen from that rivalry? Because it feels like even when UVA is better, you still can't pick them. Well, you say that. I picked the wrong winner in each of the last four years <laughs> of that game. I've been wrong on it every time. Oh, no. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, but they... Could you blame me for picking UVA this year? I mean, the way that Brennan Armstrong was playing and just Virginia Tech was down in the dumps, uh, you know, last year the same way. Virginia Tech at the end of the season not looking good and the questions about the quarterback. A couple years ago, I, I picked uh, Virginia Tech to win and then Bryce Perkins beats them almost single-handedly. There is something about that rivalry where there's this hang-up uh, with UVA playing Virginia Tech, I think. I think it does get in their heads a little bit. Because they go out and they do ridiculous things in some spots to lose some of these games, like, you know, throw a backward pass to an offensive lineman in the red zone. Great, great strategy. Part. Very good strategy. <laughs> I will never I will never understand that play. It will go down in the, the rivalry's lore. It's just one of the biggest head scratchers uh, in the history of this series that you go, man, you have all those weapons on offense and you throw it to an offensive line. Look, what are you doing? It was just... And that's not like, I don't know. I, I think they just kind of get in their own heads in some of this stuff. And, they, you know, Virginia Tech obviously gets up for these games. They do not like uh, to lose that. The team that lost that is sort of wearing this, you know, uh, you know, badge of shame that they ended the streak uh, in this whole thing. But it's weird. We talk about, you know, Fuente just wasn't the right fit here and it didn't work out with him. He was 5-1 and one against UVA or 4-1 and one against UVA. And then they won in the last season after he was uh, no longer the coach. 
So uh, in his six seasons here, Virginia Tech went five and one in that game. So even in the lowest period uh, that Virginia Tech has had in the last 30 years, it's still been extremely one-sided. And maybe that speaks more about UVA than it does Virginia Tech. But yeah, there's something there that just uh, a psychological thing or something that they just can't seem to get over. A little brother, big brother complex, to say the least, when you play this game. Maybe it'll change, maybe it won't. Uh, Look at history. It doesn't look like it's going to change. Andy, this has been a ton of fun. Thank you so much for your time helping us break down all things Virginia Tech. I really appreciate it, my man. Well, thanks for having me. Man, I could have spoken to Andy forever. I mean, I think that was one of our longest interviews we've done just because so much happened in Virginia Tech season. It was it was a it was fun. It was really fun to unpack with Andy going through all the things from the offense, not having identity and and why that was, some injuries, some, you know, players just not fully developing and and then some of the the coaches as well and and why we saw this coaching change. But I think KG what you know, I, I loved most about that episode is really just diving into this new staff, who they are, what Andy's excited about, what he's heard the the fans are excited about. Because you know, when you look at VT moving forward, I mean, it, it has to be kind of a blank slate. Like, let's give Coach Pry this staff their opportunity starting now. That okay, everything moving forward, that's them. Everything in the past, we're not going to talk about it. And that that was a lot of fun to hear from Andy. Right. And I really liked what really stood out to me. And this is an automatic audiogram that we'll have on Twitter for sure. When he was talking about how Brent Pry was kind of taking the Frank Beamer mold. And you know that gets Virginia Tech fans hype when they hear that. So I see that. I, I see a little more parallels between Pry and Beamer than perhaps Fuente and Beamer. Obviously, the, the offensive side and the, and the defensive side, the difference is there. But I do like this hire for Virginia Tech. And I also really respect when a program doesn't go flashy, not necessarily that Virginia Tech could, kind of like what Andy was saying. They weren't going to go get Urban Meyer or Matt Campbell or something. But you go with a guy that you think really fits your culture. And you go with a guy that you think is going to be defensive-minded, defensive first, which is what I think Virginia Tech needs to do now. And, um, you know, you build from there. And this is a guy in Brent Pry who really fits Virginia Tech, probably fits Virginia Tech and that culture a little more than Fuente and can recruit Virginia, which was a huge issue for Fuente, as Andy told us. And it was something documented right. all, all of his tenure. So that's super important. You have the DMV area. You have the, um, the Tidewater area that is so full of talent. And you have to be able to get those guys to Blacksburg. Yeah, there's no question. Recruiting is going to be the the biggest thing, I think, outside of wins, which we know every everything is solved and cured by winning. Uh, go recruit and go recruit the heck out of those areas that KG just mentioned. That's 757. Yep. Uh, there's a ton of talent there. The key is keep it home. Keep it at Virginia Tech. And you mentioned that staff. It was so funny. I kind of admitted it earlier, but when Coach Pry was hired, I was just like, what, what are we doing? Who is this? I've never heard of this guy. Like, what? what? What are we thinking? But then, as I said, when I had started looking into him, I'm listening to things that he's saying. I'm going back and you know watching some Penn State tapes of him when he was mic'd up or something of that nature. I'm juiced up. I, I truly think that this is going to be a home run for Virginia Tech mentality-wise. And then the staff he's been able to, to bring in. Um, Joe Rudolph is a beast at what he does. I mean, he has had five... Uh, first-team All-Americans 
at Wisconsin. He was able to develop that. We all know the history of Wisconsin offensive linemen. For him to leave that to come to Hokie land, I mean, that, that's impressive. And I, I think he certainly is going to have a big part of this offense. We talk about kind of, you know, the, the fact that it's two very young coordinators, maybe two coordinators that haven't been necessarily in this position before. I think when you have a guy like Rudolph who's been around, seen a lot of things, it's certainly going to uh, to help the situation. And by the way, Rudolph played at Wisconsin. He's leaving the place that he played, KG. I mean, that's a that's a big deal. That's big. He's leaving O-line U in many respects. I, look, we'll put BC in there too, but Wisconsin, of course, that's what they're known for. <laughs> and uh, coming down to Virginia Tech. And Mac, you know, when we were looking for a producer for this podcast, we also recruited locally. We got in that radius <laughs> and we found Richmond Weaver, who is the GOAT and does so many things for our pod is one of the best producers in the game. Check out his podcast, Rich Take on Sports and Automatic, a men's and women's hoops podcast. He also has a variety of other projects in the work. So shout out Richmond Weaver. That's what happens when you recruit locally, Matt. You you hit home runs. You get five stars that are right in your backyard. It's always a great thing to do. Always appreciate Rich, all his hard work. But guys, that's it for this episode. The Hokies, we broke them down. Moving on next, coming on Thursday, the Florida State Seminoles. You guys are going to love that episode. We're, we'll get into a ton of things. Oh, oh, you hear that? Fear and the strike of enemies. Maybe a little bit uh, earlier, not so much now. But hopefully they get back to that. It'll, it'll be fun to talk about all that. Guys, if you haven't already, go to iTunes, go to Spotify, follow our podcast, drop us a little five-star rating or write us a review. It's always fun to hear from you guys and, and even you know things you want to see from the podcast moving forward. Love your opinions and thoughts there. But until next time, we'll see y'all.